0: You're listening to On Human Rights, where we talk to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law. We're broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Today we have a special episode for you. It's featuring Nancy Dowd. She is the Fulbright Lund University Distinguished Chair in Public International Law. She's currently at the Raoul Wallenberg Institute and Lund University. In this lecture, she speaks about her book, The Man Question, Male Privilege and Subordination, in which she explores masculinities theories as a means to expand gender analysis and also incorporate other hierarchies that affect gender, particularly race and class. Enjoy.
1: I want to thank you very much, Uh, for coming and giving me this opportunity to present my research. I want to thank uh, the Wallenberg Institute and the Department of Gender Studies for uh, co-hosting this today. So, uh, in the interest of transparency, this is based on a book that I wrote that is very similar to the title for this uh, lecture. But I hope also today to relate this um, to... uh, some pieces of, of Sweden as well. Um, uh, the book focuses primarily on the on the United States and on the development of masculinities theory as an addition to feminist uh, gender theory. But Sweden is a really really interesting case because, of course, it is known as um, an example of gender equality and by most of the measures, the international measures, it's usually within the top four, sometimes number one. And yet, and yet, if you look at the data uh, that, that the Swedish government uh, uh, collects regularly about work, about family life, about politics, about uh, rates of crime and violence, there is still an enormous amount of gender disparity, of gender inequality. So this is a very interesting laboratory for me to be in to see both the progress and also uh, what remains to be done. And I would suggest that masculinity's analysis in scholarship is, um, a, 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 has much to offer in terms of trying to answer the question, why have we made so much progress, but why are we still so far behind? So if I convince you of nothing else I hope I will convince you or you will remember to ask two questions. If I do nothing else today I will have succeeded if you ask those two questions. One is to ask the man question, the man or boy question, and you're going to and you're going to think, "Oh yeah, right, when gender comes up or when women's issues come up, I, okay, I'm going to remember now to ask the man question as well. And I'm going to be talking more about what the component pieces are, I think, that are part of asking that question. But I, So, uh, for example, if you're talking about crime rates, if you're talking about domestic violence, if you're talking about the balance of work and family... Um, issues that tend to be thought of as women's issues, quote-unquote. I think the man question ought to be asked as well because it has something to do with both male privilege and with male harms that we may have ignored. But the other thing I want you to do is to think about asking the other question. So what I mean by that is that sometimes we see particularly social justice issues or human rights issues as this is a class issue. This is a race issue. This is a gender. We put it in a category. We put it in a frame, and we forget that there might be other things going on. So I'm going to use the example here of immigration. Right, which is an issue that is at the forefront, has been in the forefront since I arrived here five months ago. It's in the forefront uh, of American politics as well. And in that discussion about the pros and cons and what is going on and what are the dynamics, rarely do I hear someone ask, and what about the gender element in all of this? And particularly to ask the man question. Because I would suggest to you that it is the male face of immigration that is at the heart of the controversy about immigration, right? It is a face uh, that is a Middle Eastern face, that, so it has a racial and ethnic component to it. It has a religious component to it. And I would suggest to you that it has been constructed as a face of threat and danger, and that it very much is related to gender. So asking the other question, what else might be going on in the dynamic of how we are thinking through issues of immigration, of refugee status, or even of safety and terrorism, I think we need to ask the other question. Why? So that we will understand what we are talking about in a different and better and so more sophisticated way, and not to miss what's going on. Because I think any time that a male face becomes a face of danger and threat, it is reinforcing a particular aspect of masculinity for all men, not just the men who are perceived as the source <laughs> of threat. Um, so I'm mainly going to be um, walking my way through about 12 core propositions of masculinity scholarship but I want to mention one other thing that I hope you might carry away and keep in mind as you think about asking the man question and that is you might want to notice in what circumstances in what settings are men dominant or soul or either men or women in what settings do you walk in and and notice, oh, that's pretty much a male place. There are very few women present. It might be classes that you're in. It might be social places that you go. It might be where you go to work out or what part of the gym you're in as to whether one gender or the other is dominant. Why do I think that's important? Um, because it is in those gender-dominant settings that I think we often treat gender as if it's invisible. Prison and crime is a good example of that. Dominantly, uh, crimes are committed by boys and men, and prisons, including in Sweden, are 95% male. Okay, But when we talk about that issue, we talk about crime. We talk about prisoners. We don't talk about it as if this is part of the manifestation of a gender dynamic. And contrast those gender dominant, gender soul situations to a gender mixed situation, right? What's happening in that dynamic? How much mixture of men and women do we have to have to actually change the dynamic of? the job of the class, of uh, who's taking care of children or whatever else. So again, I, I want to encourage you to think of asking this questions, but paying attention always to the context. So the first two <laughs> propositions that I want to offer up to you, all right that men are different. They are not the same. They are not a universal. And that intersections of manhood, particularly with race, gender, class, and sexual orientation, this is particularly in the U.S. context, you might add some different pieces of identity intersections in the Swedish context or the European context or any other area of the world. Those intersections are meaningful, incredibly meaningful, and sometimes an intersection will completely trump it will completely eliminate the privilege and the power that is, that is associated uh, with uh, manhood. It's very important, then, to see men as residing within another hierarchy, and that is the hierarchy of men. And that sometimes, also, men lose the privilege, the power, the dominant position of manhood entirely, okay? So to view men in an undifferentiated way, as if they are all the same, all have the same attributes and position, right, is is to miss that. So not all men are similarly situated. Gender privilege can even be trumped by another characteristic or by not conforming to gender norms. Gay men are a particular example of this. They transgress the norms of manhood and therefore often lose the privilege of manhood. (coughs) But as this um, particular slide indicates also, not only is there differentiation, but manhood is something that, based on masculinity studies, has to be constantly achieved. It's not that you achieve it, you're there and you stay there, right? It's a constant performance, a daily performance. Um, so we have both instability and hierarchy as part of this differentiation between men. So where they are, particularly in relation to each other is a key piece of masculinity. That means that any victory is short because the next interaction is determining where you are in relation to to other men. So differences among men might suggest the need that we need to calibrate the way we think about things or policy in a way that pays attention to men's differences to where they're situated so that they aren't ignored or disproportionately burdened. Now as far as intersectionality, I'm going to give you a couple of of examples from the United States. In the United States, the intersection of race and uh, maleness is uh, fraught, particularly for African-American men. So these are two examples. The, um, the one on the left, this is Tamir Rice, um, a 12-year-old boy who was uh, playing with a, um, uh, uh, a toy gun in a park. Um, someone calls in that there's uh, potentially a man or a youth in the park with a gun. What do the police do? They roll up. 10 feet away from him, and within two seconds, were firing at him, shot him, and killed him, okay? That is a, a, the other example on the right is um, Professor Henry Louis Gates, a very esteemed professor at Harvard University, came home from giving a a talk, uh, got to his front door, was having difficulty getting his key to work, had his driver, who is also African-American, come up and try and help him. This gets called in as, as a possible burglary in progress. The, the police show up. Um, you, in the background to the right is the sergeant um, who questions uh, Professor Gase, who says, well, this is my house. I just can't get in. And he is challenged on that. And you can imagine if somebody, you are saying, this is my house. This is my apartment. I'm just trying to get in and then is pushed and pushed and pushed by the police. They eventually arrested him for disorderly conduct. He is on the front porch of his own house trying to get it in his own home. Um, This caused a huge uproar because of... of, uh, He's a very well-known, well-esteemed professor who happened to have had President Obama in his class, so this uh, made the papers. But these are two examples of... Police officers, dominantly male. Again, still the case in Sweden as well. Uh, policing is a highly masculinized culture and highly masculinized job. An interaction between a police officer and a man with, with a male, then, is fraught with masculinity. And a minority male in the United States has to be worried that it can lead to arrest, injury, or death, as many of our uh, statistics indicate. I would suggest to you that the same intersectionality that puts you at the bottom of the hierarchy is present with respect to immigrants. And to anyone who looks like an immigrant or, or looks like they, they represent, again, this is a uh, you know the picture after picture after picture that we see about uh, migrants about refugees, who's in the picture? Dominantly men, right? And hardly being treated here as if they are, uh, have a dominant gender position, right? But rather almost being penned in as if they were not even human. Um, And again, seen as threatening. And what's interesting about this is that roughly 50% of migrants in Europe are women as well, but the face of it is male. But these, these men, I would argue to you, their, their um, status as, as immigrants as well as their particular where they come from, how they are perceived, puts them uh, at the bottom of the, um, of the ladder in terms of, of masculinity. A second set of propositions. Men pay a, a price for privilege and masculinities is a social construction. Okay, so, so what does that mean? So the characteristics that are associated and valued within manhood are also characteristics that can cause harm to men, as well as there are um, classically, typically, uh, again, harms that are suffered by boys and men that are not or not to the same degree suffered by women. So, the, um, uh, for example, uh, men's health is clearly affected by the stresses and demands of masculinity that ends up in the refusal to seek out care, whether it's uh, physical or mental. Um, and you see the same uh, phenomenon with respect to boys. Um, They have a higher rate of injury than girls. They have a higher rate of completed suicide than girls do. Uh, They commit crimes more and they are the victims of crimes more. When boys fail at education, when they don't achieve up to their ability, it is frequently linked to the idea that doing well in school is simply not a cool thing for a boy to do. And the school environment is very much structured in a way uh, that the, the um, qualities that are associated with good students, with high-achieving students, students who never get disciplined, are hard standards for boys to meet. But probably the saddest example of the burdens of privilege, if you will, is the consensus among researchers of men and boys that social and cultural masculinity's norms reinforce emotional limitations. They play out, those emotional limitations play out lifelong in a lack of empathy and difficulties with intimate relationships whether those are friendships or partnerships, whether they are heterosexual or homosexual. So the emotional life of men based on this scholarship suggests that as a group their emotional life is stunted and limited. And this is a, 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 a price for the privilege of manhood that affects every aspect of their well-being. One of the other ways in which masculinity standards again affect men's uh, well-being is um, its association with violence (laughs) and risk-taking and therefore the the disproportion of boys in the juvenile justice system in the United States and men in the criminal justice system in every country that I know of suggests this is not an aberration from what it means to be a Man, this, Their behavior is along the continuum of what it means to be a man, particularly in relation to violent crimes. And I said masculinities is a social construction. Now this may seem like unremarkable to you. You may all accept that idea, but when was the last time you heard something like, boys will be boys? Right. That kind of statement says men are the way they are because of something hardwired in the DNA, in the hormones. Right. So they're not beha- they're. they're it, it actually suggests that men are not in control. Right. They do the things that they do because of something inner that pushes them in that direction. When instead masculinity what it means to be a man is a social construction it's a process of socialization now the plus side of that is it's fluid it's not fixed it changes and certainly if you start with your generation now go a generation or two back you can see that process of fluidity and change on the other hand both men and women, even if even if all of us are subject to a social construction of our gender, we feel that as if it is hardwired in the DNA. So saying that it's a social construction reminds us that's where it comes from. Social construction is extraordinarily powerful. And so... I don't know if you can see this one, but again, it's powerful in the sense of its constraining. And one of the things I think that is most distinctive about comparing gender with respect to women and men is that for girls and women, uh, the the movement towards gender equality has been about eliminating barriers, <coughs> eliminating boundaries, right? stepping in and doing things that men do, right? And being just as good at it, uh, s- sometimes better at it, but in other words, of uh, feeling no constraints. But there's much more constraint, I think, that operates for men. And um, there, I think there's a reason for that. It has to do with the devaluation of anything that is female. Now, in this hierarchy that I talked about before, at the top of the hierarchy is something that masculinity scholars call hegemonic masculinity, and so that's at the top of the heap. And also, the generally favored position of men as a group over women as a group generates what's what's been called by masculinity scholars. The patriarchal dividend it's very similar to the notion of the skin privilege uh, that whites have right that you walk around without anyone necessarily telling you that you have it or necessarily that you wanted to have it but it is there because of the nature of the distribution of power let me go back to hegemonic masculinity for a while now, you knew I had to bring Donald Trump into this. In fact, I thought given the last couple of days, I probably could have spent the whole lecture just talking about him. And as I think an example very much of, of what he does and how he behaves is driven by hegemonic masculinity. Okay, so what do we know about hegemonic masculinity? Again, it is defined as American slash European slash Western. It's white. It's middle to upper class, right? And then it has a series of characteristics that put you in the mo- in the <clears throat> highest part of the hierarchy of men. And then presumptively, you are also then dominant over all women. Okay? Remember the patriarchal dividend. It, again, tends to be a quite negative norm, but the other thing is remembering that it is the rare man who meets the hegemonic masculinity standard. And part of the standard is that you must constantly demonstrate that you are at that standard. It's not something you achieve and then you're there. It has to be performed and asserted every day and in every interaction, particularly from one man to another man. So you see why I have used our president, my president, not my president, but my country's president as an example of this because what is being reported about his interactions uh, very much seems to me to come from the instability of his own position not a sense of the all-powerful, but of consistently trying to show that he's at the top of the masculinity hierarchy. So remember, hegemonic masculinity is demanding. In at least one culture, it's called the big impossible. So rarely can it be achieved. If it is achieved, you don't have it for all time, It has to be demonstrated on a daily basis, and this is very much about men's relationship um, to other men. Now, the other, again, still the overall notion of, of the male hierarchy is, again, the notion of the patriarchal dividend. That is that all men benefit from whether they exercise or use it or not, But the other thing is that the patriarchal dividend is so pervasive that we take it for granted. We don't even notice that it's there. So, recent meeting of the EU. This is the picture. Recent meeting in the U.S. celebrating the one piece of legislation that's gotten through one house of our Congress to repeal Obamacare. So, what do I notice about these two pictures? The dominance of men in both pictures. The dominance of men as leaders. Right? The dominance of men in politics. And, well, hey, that's just the way it is. Right? It's taken for granted. It's taken for granted. Um, So, what does this visual tell us? Right? It tells us something about political power, but it also tells us about who, is, who are the people who are thinking about particular issues and does their gender affect how they see the world. I would suggest to you that it does. So therefore, an imbalance of one, right? this is another one of those almost uh, gender, it, just no women present, Right or very few present. This is one of those examples of it, but one that I think we take as a given. So what if a man wants to reject the patriarchal dividend? How does he do that? How does he give up power? Versus, of course, the other strategy would be to get rid of the patriarchal dividend, and how is that accomplished? Again, we notice what we take for granted when we pay attention to something that's out of whack with what we normally assume. So if women do work that has been associated with men, that is men's work, wow, that's, that's unusual, right? That's disrupting the patriarchal dividend, but it, we notice it. And we also notice it when men do what women do, but again, you might notice that the picture here i don 't know if you can quite see the expression on his face it 's almost as if this is ridiculous i can 't believe i 'm doing this right quite different from the women who were the women welders on the other side so these three propositions, I think are are ones that are incredibly important and that if we pay attention to them both in the US and in Sweden they might help us to explore and consider why has equality moved so slowly why are we still where we are Um, some of the data from from, uh, Sweden are, are quite remarkable in how slow that progress has been Given again the political and cultural commitment to uh, gender equality, so the the two most critical defining characteristics of masculinity—again, this is based on the masculinity scholarship—are negatives. They aren't what it means to be a man, but rather what a man must not be. Don't be a girl. Don't be gay. Don't do what women do don't be a fact, the amount of of, um, limiting policing of men using those two things remains very powerful. Right? That they can have that effect, of course, speaks volumes. Again, that masculinity is not about, not solely about the relationship of men to women. Look at the relationship of men to men, which also affects the relationship of all men to women, right? That, that hierarchy, that inequality, that competitiveness, that fear that is a driver in the construction of masculinity is a Piece that I, that I think is part of the slowed progress of equality, and the last one may seem like, what? How can that be? How can men, although powerful, feel powerless? How can that be? All right, but remember that dynamic of the relationship of men to each other. I think that's a a big piece of it. So, don't be a woman, don't be a girl, don't do what women do, don't do what girls do. Where has this had enormous impact? On caregiving, on taking care of children, taking care of partners, taking care of your parents. Who still does most of the caregiving? Even in Sweden, which has enviable policies to support the equality of care, particularly with respect to children, that has amazing campaigns that have tried to construct a different model of fatherhood, right? Um, the number of parental leave days taken in Sweden is roughly three-quarters women, one-quarter men. W- one study said one-fifth. This is, this is now. This is not 30 years ago. Uh, who does the household unwaged work? Two-thirds women, One-third men, that's the the Swedish amount. This is not very far from um, American standards. Now, has fatherhood changed? Has images of fatherhood changed? Absolutely, absolutely. So is there a cultural and political devotion to the idea of 50-50 parenting? Yes, but it's not happening on the ground. And it has an impact, obviously, in uh, the work that women do. Uh, A huge number of women in Sweden uh, work part-time. A minuscule number of men do. What's the most common reason? Because they're taking care of very young children. The second one, right? Don't be gay. Don't be gay. Now, of course, that's encompassed in what does it mean to be gay? What behavior, clothing... Uh, uh, homosocial friendships anything that we define as gay if you're not supposed to be gay then you don't do that right? you don't do that do we think that being gay means having an equal partnership and the heterosexual norm of masculinity is of an unequal partnership I think it's not um, unremarkable that with respect to issues regarding transgender individuals, who do we worry about? The men who have have transitioned to become women. When was the last time on a transgender issue that you saw uh, a spokesperson or a um, uh, uh, an individual highlighted who was a woman who became a man? So why would a someone move from valued manhood to devalued womanhood, right? And this disrupts notions of what gender is, what sex is, all kinds of things. Very unsettling, but most unsettling to masculinity because now not, not being able to put this person in a category certainly violates don't be a woman and don't be gay all over the place. The... Um, the relation again the, the a critical piece of masculinity is the relation of men to men remember that ideal of masculinity very difficult to achieve has to be performed every day and the worst thing to be is weak never show weakness don't be a sissy don't be a girl don't be gay All those words that are thrown at men. And this goes on life long. This isn't just a young man's thing. This goes on until death. Right? It goes on until death. So... It pits every man against every man, and so in addition to being challenged to a standard of masculinity that must be continuously performed, it's a process of comparison, of measuring, that puts each man against all others. So to think about equality issues as male-female and not look at this male-male interaction, I think is missing a huge, huge piece. And I said, men, although powerful, feel powerless, right? Well, again, if you relate it back to this notion of hierarchy, to I constantly have to perform, I constantly have to measure myself in relation to other men. And what's my fear? The fear is the fear uh, that somebody's going to find out that you're weak. That you're weak. Right. One of the um, uh, Vietnam vets who wrote a, 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 a book about his experience in Vietnam said courage for him and many other soldiers comes not from bravery, but from fear that someone is going to discover that you are afraid, that you are weak. That's the worst thing. So courage comes from that fear of being exposed. So this, this may, after all of this, seem self-evident, that structures and cultures are gendered male. That has been a claim of feminists for a long time, and I think masculinities helps further um, substantiate that claim. And that the the, the daily spaces and places that men and women inhabit are often different. I've always thought it would be interesting to have a woman's day when all the women stay home and we see what the world looks like when it's only the, the public world is populated by men and then a reverse the next day and see if they're the same uh, because I think they are in fact uh, quite different so for example, um, in my profession, I'm a, a law professor in the United States and came into the, the uh, when I came into law school, um, it, the, the number of female law students was about 25%. The profession is still trying to sort itself out, but it has been a profession that has been dominated by the notion that a lawyer is a man. So early in my, uh, before I was teaching and was practicing, Uh, I was constantly being identified as the lady lawyer um, uh, when clients were told who to expect to walk through the door to handle their claim. Oh, the lady lawyer's coming. (laughs) Because lawyer meant a man, right? And so still, um, law as a discipline, law as practiced, um, and in this case, this is a Canadian judge who is saying, I felt like I was dressing up in men's clothes, doing men's work, because uh, the work of being a judge is so strongly male-identified, the way the courtroom's set up, um, the, the way judging is done, evidentiary rules, all kinds of things, again, are related to a male standard. Um... Again, same thing, if you see a, a man in a female space, now this is a very uh, famous Swedish wrestler who was used in the early um, efforts to get Swedish men to take uh, parental leave, and, the, and, the, and this is a, almost an iconic uh, poster. What, what's The message here is, look, big strong man, little bitty baby, kind of looks like a takeoff on the Madonna and child, right? what's being communicated here is real men, strong men the manliest, most hegemonic men take your little bitty babies right, and that, and so you should too, you should take your parental leave, this was when the the take up was even lower uh, than it is now very last piece here okay, Uh, this is a kind of a discouraging message but (coughs) Hopefully, there are strategic ways to think about this, and that is that men have a in little incentive to sacrifice privilege. Why, why would they, right? What's what's the pull? Okay, and how do you give it up? How do you give up power? How do you give up privilege? The usual answer is the only way the power is rarely surrendered; it usually has to be taken. Okay. But also I think that as, as there have been campaigns to pull men into gender issues, it's interesting to look at the attempt to bring them in as allies to women, but not to not in their <coughs> own movement to change the dynamic of masculinity. Okay? So let me show you a couple of of couple of efforts to do that. Oh, and I—I I forgot that I had these two slides I want to show you. So I went looking for what can I find about what's what's percolating up about Swedish men and masculinity. I found these two slides, and and this was the side-by-side side comparison. I didn't create this. This was there, and I'm like, well, that's really interesting. And here's the second one. Now, we've got the, we got the warriors, right, on the left. And we got the not-so-flattering <clears throat> pictures on the right. So, I just I leave that for you to think about. Um, back to, okay, um, some strategic efforts to um, cr- create collaboration instead of conflict between men and women. Uh, this is a UN movement, He for She, Right, I'm going to stand with women. That's the 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 um, the effort here. Um, this is a campaign against sexual assault and domestic violence, uh, run by the National Domestic Violence Coalition in the United States. Um, we let's bring the toughest, roughest, meanest, you know straighten up person we can to put on the poster to say, okay, we're not, we're not going to accept that boys will be boys' excuse anymore, okay, so no more of that, don't want to hear that anymore. Um, I listen when a girl says no, do you? Okay, again, trying to change the conversation, particularly around sexual assault. Um using again Hollywood actors to um, stand against sex trafficking of girls um, notice we're calling it real men what real men do um, when I saw this I does this mean that real men buy women but they just don't buy girls um, it, it's <laughs> a little I don't think they meant it that way but I, I but again it's a, it's using the the, the um, idea of real men, and let's reconstruct what real men should and shouldn't do. And then this last one is, again, an anti-domestic violence campaign in Ireland using the phrase, man up. Come on, man up and stand against domestic violence. Behind every great man, there's kindness, courage, and support for women and children. Kind of sounds like who... You know who are we going to put in the lifeboat oh yeah that's right women and children first uh, so so I just think these are interesting strategies um, not sure how successful you think they are so I just want to close with saying what, what I what I think maybe comes from this in terms of adding some further pieces <coughs> when you ask the man question or the boy question Um, you might ask where are men positioned is it a position of privilege a position of harm or both secondly wherever you see men or however you're characterizing well men in this situation are privileged for example does this apply to all men or only to some men Okay, differentiating Don't make them universal when, in fact, they often are not. Third, look for and ask, is this an example of male-to-male hierarchy? Because I think that male-to-male hierarchy is an enormously unexplored area in terms of moving towards gender equality. And last, how do you open the frame? for men to move from a negative concept of what it means to be a man to a positive concept of what it means to be a man. And in particular, so that they can center their relationships on what the relationship folks tell us is the most critical characteristic (coughs) of a positive relationship between parent and child, between friend and friend, between partner and partner, the most critical characteristic is vulnerability. Right? Your willingness, your openness, complete openness to that other person, even to the possibility that they will hurt you. I don't mean physically hurt you. I mean that that emotionally things may not always work out, okay? So, Um, I hope I've left you with some valuable ways of seeing and also that you'll feel um, energized to ask questions and dispute and debate as well. Thank you so much.
0: On Human Rights is broadcast from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Thanks so much for listening today. We'll be back soon with more talking to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law.